Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Over the years, we've talked about chronic pain, and we've talked to chronic pain patients who suffered tremendously. It's agony. We're not talking about headaches here, or a little bump there, or a little nick there. We're talking about people who live in 24-7 agony. And they are in need of pain relief. And for so many, it has been and continues to be prescription opioid medication, pain medication. And if you use the word opioid, there's an immediate withdrawal. People just lean back and say, terrible. No, it isn't. Not for the pain patients who are managing their medications properly, who have a relationship with their doctors, who have been on the same medication for years. And yet many of these patients are facing very difficult times. Now, let me begin by saying the reason I'm doing this is the Toronto Board of Health, with the support of the Toronto Chief of Police, is seeking federal government backing for decriminalizing personal possession of small amounts of illegal drugs. Not going to argue that. That's a debate for another day. But while this is going on, while the Board of Health, with the support of the Chief of Police, is seeking federal government backing for decriminalizing or personal possession of small amounts of illegal drugs, more than a million Canadians who suffer with often life-altering and, frankly, sometimes suicide-causing, debilitating chronic pain, they're increasingly being refused continuation of their opioid pain medications. And we can talk about that. I'm sure we will. In the United States, the American Medical Association is adopting, I understand, a more pain-patient-friendly approach, finally. And families of pain patients who commit suicide in the U.S. are beginning to turn to the courts. And a U.S. court just weeks ago awarded a $7 million settlement or judgment to the widow of a chronic pain patient who was refused his prescription medications and then took his own life. So the court, the jury, listened, heard the case, and awarded $7 million. Kate Nicholson is a former chronic pain patient and U.S. Department of Justice lawyer. She's the founder and president of national, the National Pain Advocacy Center. She's appeared on TED Talk, and she's been on this program many times, and we've talked about this issue of chronic pain. How are you, Kate? I'm well, Roy. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much for coming on the air. And before we do anything else, Kate, what I'd like to do is I want our listeners to hear some audio. And it's the audio of a young mother. Her name is April. I don't know anything other than that about her. The, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the video that the audio is going to come from appeared on YouTube. You've seen this one, eh, Kate? Uh, I'm not sure. Okay. Well, we're going to play just two minutes of this young mother who has stage four breast cancer and has just walked out of the pharmacy where she was to have her pain medication prescription filled. And I want our listeners to listen to this young mom and how she describes her life and as she's, how she's being treated as a chronic pain patient. So... I'm just leaving my pharmacy. I'm not, I'm not, I'm frustrated. And that's why I'm crying. I get pain pills 
every, maybe every two, three months, okay? I can make one monthly prescription of pain pills last two or three months because I don't really take it unless I absolutely need it. And when you have metastatic cancer in your bones, you need it because sometimes the pain is so much you can't even function. And I just want to function. I just want to be able to go to work and I want to be able to sleep and I want to be able to do things with my child and, and I just want it not to hurt all the time. So my regular pharmacy, it's a Rite Aid pharmacy. I've gone there since they've opened. I've probably been there for 20 years. I've had a hard time getting my pain pills filled from them for as long as I can remember from probably, you know, I would say at least two or three years. Every time I take my pain pill prescription there, they give me the runaround. It's, it's that, um, they don't have enough in stock or they don't, um, they need me to come back tomorrow because maybe, you know, they can't fill it today. They have to do it tomorrow or something stupid. It's always something. There's always some stupid excuse and it's stupid. It's stupid excuses. It's a pharmacy. And I know that there's stricter, tighter controls on that stuff. And for good reason, you know, but I've got fucking cancer. I have terminal cancer. So that's just two and a half minutes. It goes on. And if that has affected you, it should. Then the rest will affect you as well. You can... Find the link on my uh, Twitter feed, at The Roy Green Show. We uh, placed it there today, at The Roy Green Show. Kate, when you hear this young woman, um, this is so often the truth, isn't it? This is so often what happens to chronic pain patients. We're not talking, again, about people who have headaches. We're talking about people who are living in absolute um, surging agony. When you hear this, what are you hearing? Uh, unfortunately, um, I had seen that that particular clip before. Unfortunately, I, I hear these stories almost every day. I get emails from complete strangers talking uh, about the inability to either um, get their prescriptions filled at pharmacies. We, we, we talk about that as the pharmacy crawl. Um, when you're in a lot of pain, it's also really hard to have to go back again and again to the pharmacy. It may be difficult to sit or to stand. Um, it's happening with insurers denying people's claims for medication. And as you know, it's also happening um, when physicians are, are, are concerned about oversight and are uh, sort of forcibly taking people down or off their medication in ways we now have dozens of studies showing increase uh, their risk of death in addition to destabilizing their health, their mental health and lives. And so it's, it's tragic. It is what brought me into this conversation um, in 2017, I am someone who used opioids for a period of time when I had very severe um, pain after a surgical injury, um, was largely unable to sit, stand, or walk. Um, and uh, so this 
problem is what started me in advocacy. And unfortunately, it's very widespread. And while I, I do understand your outrage that people being prescribed a legal medication by a doctor, you know, sort of can't get them. Um, and at the same time, we're having a conversation about decriminalization. I, I, I do agree with decriminalization for possession because I don't think that the way the drug war is waged um, is disconnected from what's happening to pain patients and the stigmatization of controlled substances and lots of, you know, sort of misunderstandings um, that abound. But, you know, chronic pain patients have just been caught in the crosshairs of, you know, um, this uh, drug overdose crisis and have been the collateral damage. And I, I think uh, I was just on Capitol Hill last week talking to, to regulators. I think people are starting to understand this more in this country. But um, it's been a brutal four or five years for people having to live with this day in and day out and being denied their medication. This is after the uh, CDC recommendations, which were adopted in this country as well. Now, uh, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that uh, I'm, not, I'm not equating what's happening in Toronto with what's happening to chronic pain patients. It was just the fact that the Toronto Board of Health, with the support of the chief of police, is seeking federal government support on decriminalization of possession of illegal drugs, small amounts for personal use. That just gave me the thought that we need to talk again about what's happening to chronic pain patients and the, and the challenges they're facing and the medications that are being uh, refused. And doctors have told me, and I know you know this, Kate, better than I. Doctors have said, uh, hey, I'm reluctant to prescribe pain meds because I'm afraid of losing my license. I'm not overstating it, am I? No, you're not, actually. Um, you're definitely not. I mean, Human Rights Watch did a big report in 2018 where it interviewed a lot of providers who said exactly that. You know, um, patients are becoming liabilities, and it, it is not, you know, it is in my best medical judgment that this person be continued on this medication, but I can't afford to lose my license. Interestingly, this, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to be hearing um, sort of a, a case um, this term about the standards under which you can prosecute a, a, a physician um, under the Controlled Substances Act. So maybe maybe there will be some clarity from that. Yeah, and there was a case, and... Uh... Uh, I know you're probably more familiar with this case than I, but there was a case in uh, in, in Florida where a woman was awarded $7 million by a jury, a jury award, after her husband committed suicide, after he was denied his pain meds. Yeah. Yeah, it was a pretty, it was a pretty big case in the U.S. Um, he had been um, in a treatment facility um, in a different state. He'd been in the hospital for a very long time and in a rehab center, and they had placed him on a higher dose of opioids and then went back and he, he sort of experienced a gap in care. He went back to his home state um, and tried to get a prescription filled by the provider. And basically the provider said, well, I can't, you know, you, you went through your medication too quickly. I can't see you for another seven days. He was, he was very desperate. It was like a 55% reduction, I think, um, which is dangerous in, in his opioid use. And, um, he and his wife tried many times to call the, the, the office and, and get some help. He was a wheelchair user, so someone with very serious pain. Um, and, you know, when they finally denied it, he sent his wife a note saying that was the end. He, he just couldn't take it anymore. They were denying the script, and, and he um, died by suicide right after that. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Stefan Curtis. Am I pronouncing his name correctly, Kate? Uh, Curtis. 
Cortez, he's gotten in touch with us and because uh, he knew you tweeted out there you're going to be on the show, and I think he's going to be with us in just a moment. Um, Wonderful. Yeah. Stefan and I work together often. Okay, let me uh, let me get him on right now. I believe he's ready. Dr. Cortez, are you there? Yeah, I am. Hi. Th- thanks very much for joining us. It's Roy Green and uh, with Kate Nicholson. Yeah, it's great to be on. Um, Dr. Cortez, what is your involvement with chronic pain? So I'm a primary care doctor and have taken care of uh, very high vulnerability patients for a long time, particularly people who are homeless or formerly homeless, who have very high rates of chronic pain. And I've paid a lot of attention, and also high rates of addiction, by the way. Um, so I've paid a lot of attention to the policy surrounding prescription of opioids. I certainly prescribe uh, opioids to some of my patients who have long-term pain. Uh, and I've always been really interested in how policy changes sometimes leave people uh, in serious trouble, Healthcare policy changes. And that's something that I noticed as we started our major reduction in the United States in 2016, and I grew increasingly alarmed at what was happening to patients who were kind of caught in the crossfire. What's happening with doctors? I, I heard, and I mentioned this to Kate, and she and I have talked about this before, doctors have said that they are under significant pressure not to continue with, uh, with, with pain, uh, prescriptions, with medication prescriptions, if they're at a certain level the colleges don't approve of, the colleges of phys- surgeons or physicians and surgeons don't approve of, or their American equivalent. Uh, is, is that happening in the United States where doctors are under huge pressure? Yeah, I think it's a little different between Canada and the U.S. because in the U.S. we have a major criminal justice aspect to this, which is that the United States Department of Justice has the power to um, to launch charges, criminal charges against physicians for their prescriptions. So that that is a little bit different from simply the pressure that would come from a provincial college, which might be pressure of its own, of course. But in both cases, what we're talking about is doctors don't have a lot of background training in pain or in rehabilitation. And so their original prescriptions, they didn't really understand what they were doing when they ran those prescriptions up, to be fair, or at least not all of them did. And then when the pressure came down and said, look, we've got to really change everything because the opioid crisis is somehow tied to this, doctors were like, okay, well, I don't know much about this anyway, and I certainly don't want to lose my license. So you have a kind of uneducated population of people with prescriptive authority who are easily pushed around because fundamentally they never were trained (laughs) <laughs> in the issues that they're treating, uh, yeah. which is different from, say, heart disease or lung disease. Yeah. Uh, Kate, what needs to be said here? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to uh, push you aside or ignore you. Uh, what, what needs to be said? What do our listeners need to know today? Well, I, I do think also, um, you know, Canada has taken a, a slightly more aggressive stance um, in terms of tapering, what you're talking about, how, you know, taking people who already have been on these medications at stable doses for a long time. And there are studies that show that uh, risks can rise um, with dose. And so I think, you know, the policymakers were trying to address that, but um, many more overdose deaths occur at lower doses. They usually occur even when they involve a prescription opioid um, uh, in people who have many, many substances, legal and illegal, in their system. Um, prescribing has dropped in this country by 60 percent since 2011, and, and overdose deaths have only escalated because they're being driven by a tainted, both in the U.S. and Canada, by a tainted government supply, right. I mean, tainted, sorry, tainted uh, street supply, um, and the government really isn't doing a lot to address, okay. I, I would say, the current problem. So China, well, what do we make of China and its relationship with this country and with the rest of the world? We now know that we're not going to send diplomatic representation to the Beijing Olympic Games. 
The uh, genocide against the weaker population, that was voted on unanimously. The uh, genocide definition was supported unanimously in Canada's parliament, although Justin Trudeau and his entire cabinet declined to vote on that particular motion. That, to me, speaks volumes. There's the denial of freedom in Hong Kong, threats toward Taiwan. There is, of course, the imprisonment of the two Michaels. With the uh, federal foreign affairs minister parroting the official Chinese government line that the Michaels were released on bail. Nothing in there about Meng Wanzhou. And uh, the Trudeau liberals offering a deal to the opposition parties on the parliamentary standoff over documents tied to the firing of the Winnipeg lab scientists who are now in China. And there's a death sentence hanging over Canadian Ronald Schellenberg, also in China. There's so much going on in that country. And uh, a lot of it affects us because they're not exactly kind to us. I don't think they have a particularly high opinion of us. I think they think of us as being useful. And unfortunately, it seems to me that this government of ours, this Trudeau government of ours, is just playing ball with them. I mean, Mr. Trudeau did say prior to becoming prime minister, he admired the way the current Chinese government does things because they just do whatever they want. I'm paraphrasing, of course. It's very difficult for me to quote Justin Trudeau. Okay, let's get at this. Uh, Margaret McQuaid Johnston joins us, uh, China expert, former assistant deputy minister in the Canadian government. She's a senior fellow with the Graduate School of Public Affairs at the University of Ottawa. Margaret, thank you very much for coming on the program. Good to be with you again, Roy. What do we make, first of all, of China and its relationship with the rest of the world? They, they are the, uh, they're the manufacturers for much of the world, and yet they're at odds with much of the rest of the world. What do we make of their current situation? Well, it's really interesting. It appears to be that they feel that as an aspiring superpower, the way they should, would be successful is by being aggressive and treating other countries as vassal states. Um, that's really what the Belt and Road Initiative, initiative is about, where they're uh, building infrastructure in many countries around the world, uh, countries that then go into debt because they can't pay back the uh, interest uh, that, the, on the, the loans. And, and so the, the China takes over the ports. And so, you know, you see this also in the way they treat their neighbors, uh, trying to move the border of India and Bhutan and uh, sending fleets of uh, boats out to um, threaten uh, Coast Guard in the Philippines. So it's really, it's really quite a, a different country than we're used to collaborating with. And they don't seem to have the message that being friendly with other countries and working with them is a much more effective way uh, to get ahead in international relations. It doesn't seem like they really care. It just certainly doesn't seem like they really care about getting along with Canada. Australia's stood up to them, but this country, I think by and large, has not stood up to China. Uh, but they don't, they don't really seem to care, the two Michaels being a, a case in point. Uh, and uh, and the the the, uh, the ambassadors, Chinese China's ambassadors to Canada, Ambassador Kong particularly, has from inside Canada been quite willing to take pot shots at this country. And uh, you know, if you suggest that Huawei's switches shouldn't be used in the five G system, well, that's enough to uh, to get the the tirade flowing. They don't seem to care, Margaret. Well, they're trying to treat us as a small power. And in fact, uh, there was a, a message that they gave to Canadian government officials 
that Canada is not a middle power, Canada is a small power, and it has to stop leaning towards the, the US. The problem has been over the last uh, three and a half years that when those kinds of threats have been made, Canada has acted like a small power by not making a decision on Huawei, by not making a decision as to whether the CRTC should continue to allow Chinese uh, television networks in Canada when they're airing um, forced confessions, uh, by not publishing certain uh, documents and papers that are critical of China, just because that might be seen as poking the dragon. One senior official said um, uh, in, at an event I heard uh, that um, our trade with China would continue to do well as long as we don't do anything stupid. <laughs> and that seems to me strikes the bottom line of the government. So now that we have the Michaels back, I think the government is going to start to stand up to China. We saw that with the diplomatic um, boycott with the Olympics. And we'll likely see that this week uh, when the government is highly likely to ban Huawei from our 5G system. Yeah, it's taken a long time for that decision to be made. And uh, the, the, uh, the Beijing Olympics not sending diplomatic representation to the Beijing Olympic Games. It took us a couple of days after the United States to, uh, to, make, to make that decision public. It just seems to me that we're, we're chasing the ball when it comes to dealing with China. And they feel they, feel they can pretty much do with us as, as they choose. One of the strategies Canada has used uh, during this period is to try to work with other countries uh, so that there's a, a bigger force against uh, China, whatever the, the issue is. And we saw that uh, with the uh, uh, genocide of, of the uh, people in Xinjiang, uh, East Turkestan, uh, the Uyghurs, where um, the uh, Canadian Parliament and parliaments of other countries have uh, spoken out uh, against uh, the Uyghur genocide, have called it a genocide. We even uh, set, made Magnitsky sanctions against four senior officials uh, in Xinjiang and one major corporation that's been building all these um, concentration camps. And But we did that with the US, the UK, and the EU. And so uh, we like um, to, to find comfort in numbers. And that's again what happened with the Olympic boycott. The, um, the US announced, uh, then Australia, the UK, and then Canada. And New Zealand had announced back in October that they wouldn't be sending any, any government officials, but they used the excuse of COVID. Right. Um, and they now say, well, we've also raised the issue of human rights. I fully expect some more European countries to sign on to that uh, Olympic boycott. There's certainly some time before it starts in early February. Yeah, they just seem to have confrontation after confrontation with different countries in different parts of the world, as you say, with their neighbors, but also extended countries geographically far extended from, from China. And we live in a dangerously, I think, unsteady world with many competing interests. And the Chinese military is massive and growing constantly. There are concerns that they have uh, military objectives and that they will perhaps exercise them against Taiwan, even though that would lead to some really serious conflagration with the United States. Do you have concerns that China may have maybe taking military steps arbitrarily in the, in the not-too-distant future? Well, I, I have very serious concerns about that. 
Um, and, uh, you know, we see that often the Chinese leaders uh, don't tell the truth. Um, one might say they lie. But the, uh, Xi Jinping uh, instructed his generals to be ready to attack Taiwan. Uh, he, he instructed them back in 2018 to be ready to attack in 2020. And now we see the buildup of military along the coast. We've seen military exercises uh, that look like large groups of soldiers landing on a beach in China, could be a beach in Taiwan. And we've seen daily uh, flights, overflights over Taiwan territory. Now, the U.S. has also made some really strong comments that China shouldn't think about doing such a thing. Japan has actually come out and said that such a thing uh, would be uh, a tantamount of a, an attack on Japan. That came uh, as an unofficial statement from the previous Prime Minister, um, Prime Minister Abe, but uh, but it could be it's certainly seen as a very strong statement from from Japan, and Japan, the U.S., Australia, and India have gotten together in something called the Quad, the Quadrilateral Agreement, uh, so four countries, uh, to focus on the defense of that region. And technology is one uh, area that they're working on that I think Canada could very well contribute to. Yeah, we also have the, uh, the Australians, the Brits, the UK, and the United States with their, uh, well, their military approach toward China. And uh, it's interesting to me that they didn't, seems that Canada wasn't asked to participate. Margaret, what really interests me as well, because you're, uh, you're uh, a senior fellow with the Graduate School of Public Affairs at the University of Ottawa. How much interest is there in the youngest or the younger demographics in the relationship of Canada with China? How much interest is there in, in China among younger Canadians? Well, there is certainly some, but it's concerning to see that actually at a time when we need to be developing our capacity uh, within our government on China and in the business community and in academia, we can't seem to attract students to go to China. So, certainly they're not going now with the pandemic on uh, and kind of some of the scary things that they heard about uh, in terms of the clampdown um, when the pandemic first started in China and how people were treated, uh, you know, being being locked into their homes, literally. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, I think, you know, there's a lot of fascination, but we can't get them to go. Uh, it's, it's fewer than 5,000 a year go, mm -hmm. whereas we have 140,000 Chinese coming here. And uh, so that's, we need to develop our, our capacity to understand that country. Um, I'm pretty uh, negative about a lot of the behaviors of the Chinese government right now. But at the same time, I recognize that China's a growing force in the world, um, often a growing negative force, um, doing some positive things uh, in a few little corners of the world. Um, but we need to have a, a, a good understanding of our crop of diplomats coming up, our government leaders, our business leaders, to understand uh, the weaknesses of China and uh, and how to deal with it effectively. Yeah. I, I tell you, I wouldn't want to go after uh, seeing the two Michael situation develop the way it did and the arbitrary imprisonment of uh, of Michael's co-rig and Spavor for three years. That's 
pretty nasty business, and it just seems that they're belligerent about everything. But what, I'd, what I'm interested in as well, because there's been a lot of talk about this, and we've done interviews on this program about the situation with the biolab in, uh, in Winnipeg and uh, the scientists who were fired, um, removed by the RCMP, they're now in China, with the liberals offering the opposition parties a deal on the opposition's demand to see the government information on that particular security fiasco, and Mr. Trudeau suing the Speaker of the House because he didn't want to make the information available prior to the deal being offered. What do you make of the Winnipeg Lab situation? What do you think the bottom line on that is? Well, we won't know until the, the documents are released, if they're ever released. We know that um, there that the, the senior um, Chinese scientists had a lot of Chinese students working in that lab with them. The students were all made to leave when they, when they were forced to leave because of national security concerns. They did transfer um, samples of Ebola to China without the proper documentation. Um, in that case, it was a, a problem of protecting Canadian intellectual property that surrounded the, the research on that, and it wasn't properly protected. Um, there it didn't seem to be um, anything dangerous. It was just a protection of IP issue. Um, but there seems to be something broader, and we know that the two scientists invited a third scientist who was from a military university in China. Yeah. And there's a lot of this in Canada, much more than you would think. Um, uh, the last number I heard was 83 military uh, institutions collaborating with uh, Canadian universities um, and uh, in a one-year period. And the year before it was 120. Um, this is something that should not be happening. The Chinese military are not our friends. And the fact that there would be these kinds of collaborations going on is chilling, in my view, uh, we have a great strength in artificial intelligence, photonics, um, many other areas of technology that are of great interest to the Chinese military. Right. And we should be keeping as far away from them as possible. So there could be some, some dimension of that that's included in the documents. Yeah, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, always seems to pop up. Uh, when you when you start to look, you follow the trail from scientists or whatever it happens to be that you look that involves this country in, an, in any kind of dispute situation with uh, with China, the People's Liberation Army in one way or another pops up and it speaks to the significance of the PLA to the G government and, and the, the impact they can have. We have a minute left, Margaret. How should this country move forward in 2022 in our dealings with China? How should the Trudeau government and the opposition parties, because they can't just stand in the weeds and fire broadsides, they have to do something or provide something positive or at least something that you can work with. What should we be doing going forward? Well, the Parliamentary Committee on Canada-China Relations, which we've had in place for the last couple of years, has played a major role in bringing issues to the fore and making really uh, interesting and constructive uh, contributions as, as recommendations. So I think that should continue. I think that we need a reset on our China policy. I'm expecting in the next couple of months to see an Indo-Pacific strategy which would allow for Canadian companies that are too invested with too much risk in China to pivot to other countries in the Indo-Pacific region. And I'm really looking forward to seeing that. It's something that I recommended a couple of years ago. 
Um, further, I think that within that Indo-Pacific strategy, we're going to have to have an identification of uh, how to circumscribe our role with China to do things that are constructive All on right. climate change and the environment, but not some of these more uh, sensitive uh, issues, especially yeah. on technology. On uh, issues military, I was um, absolutely stunned by what I read about Private Jess La Rochelle of the 1st Royal Canadian Regiment Battle Group, October 6, 2006. He's uh, manning an outpost, observation post, and he was severely injured when the uh, observation post where he was was destroyed by an enemy rocket. Two of his comrades were killed three injured, and he alone was left to defend the flank of his company. He had a broken back, detached retina, deaf in his right ear, wounded by shrapnel. And what he did after that is absolutely stunning. And there is a campaign underway by a group called Valor in the Presence of the Enemy Association, headed by General Rick Hillier, former Chief of Defense Staff, and it was Bruce Moncour, who's an Afghan campaign veteran, who made me aware of this particular situation. Bruce is very much involved with uh, Afghan campaign veterans. But this is about Private Jess LaRochelle and his bravery, his heroism, and the effort is to provide, to create for uh, Private LaRochelle the reality of receiving the Victoria Cross, the most significant bravery award award um in in our military not one serving member of the canadian military in the afghanistan campaign has received the victoria cross in fact only a hundred canadian military have received the victoria cross over the years general rick hillier is the former chief of staff of the canadian military he joins us on the roy green show on the chorus radio network general it's always an honor to speak with you thank you for your service Hey, Roy, thank you, uh, and for my service, you know, that was a labor of love, and, and I realize that love when I hear you talk about Jess Larishell, and what an incredible son of our nation he is, and, and I was privileged to serve in the same armed forces with him. General, I've, I haven't said what he did. I talked about his injuries, and, uh, but, but tell us, please, share with us what Private Larishell did on that day, on the 6th of October, 2006, when he was very severely injured. Well, uh, what Jess LaRochelle did on the 14th of October 2006 at Strong Point Center uh, in, in a defensive area was demonstrated valor in the presence of an enemy, which uh, is, of course, the requirement to be awarded uh, a Victoria Cross in recognition of that valor. And he, with his uh, platoon, moved in. They were down one of the three sections because a vehicle had gone back into Kandar Airfield because of repairs. They move into Strong Point Center. Uh, late morning, and are getting intelligence reports that there's a, an enemy assault coming. Uh, the section second in command, Master Corporal Jeremy LeBlanc, asked for volunteers to go into the observation of the post, and he said, you know, which is the point that's right out there, it's right at the the point of fire, the point of spear, the, the point of the spear, if you will. And he said, you know, we we I need a volunteer. We never put just one soldier in alone, but because we are so short-handed here today, I'm asking for one volunteer. And Jess LaRochelle put his hand up, volunteered to go into that observation post, got in there with a machine gun and with some M72 rocket launchers with him. And as soon as he was in by himself, 
the attack sort of came in almost directly right at him. Rocket-propelled grenade exploded above him, and he said, you know, I thought it was kind of Star Wars. Things were happening, exploding around me. He slammed back into the uh, the, the the mud and wattle wall from the from the tower there, which, you know, baked in the sun. That's, that's like steel. He has vertebrae in his back broken, vertebrae in his neck broken. As you mentioned, his right retina is, de- is uh, detached. Uh, the retina of his right eye is detached. He's bleeding from the ears. But he knows that if he doesn't return fire from that observation post, the enemy are going to overwhelm that side of Strong Point Center. Uh, we've already got a vehicle that's been hit, so he knows the rest of the platoon is in trouble. He fired all of the machine gun ammunition very directly while still under fire himself, directly at the Taliban fighters coming at him, shooting at him, firing rocket-propelled grenades at him. When he got down to about 100 rounds left, he, he kept that and started firing the M72 rocket launchers. So, you know, snap the ends off the tube, extend it, aim it, and fire it directly at fighters coming at him. He kept this up despite the wounds that he had and despite the pain that he was in and despite the fact that he's there by himself. The platoon commander, Lieutenant Ray Corby, who was a hero that day himself, quite frankly, came forward. He knew it was a point of, uh, of great, uh, great stress, this uh, observation post. And he said, I thought anybody in that observation post was dead. It was so destroyed. And then he saw Jeff Larochelle's head pop up and said, hey, I'll give you covering fire. Come on in. And he went into the observation post, saw what Jess was doing, saw the discarded tubes from the rocket launchers and the casings from the machine gun, knew what Jess had done and said, okay, I'll get somebody up here to replace you. And, and Jess said, we probably don't want to impose that on anybody else. I've been here. I'll hang in and get through it. So uh, Lieutenant Corby left him there. Jess stayed on in that uh, observation post later in the evening was reinforced by one other soldier and the uh, and the section commander and stayed there all night of course keeping the enemy at bay then the next day went into a uh, safe farewell to two of his friends from the platoon who had been killed during the attack uh, participated in the in the uh, ramp ceremony by helping carry the body of his friend Blake Williamson onto the aircraft and only after that did he indicate uh, to his superiors and to the medic that was there that he was hurting and was taken aside then and was start to be diagnosed with the wounds that he had, the broken vertebrae in the neck, the detached right tetna, the concussion that came from the uh, rounds itself, and over a period of time was many back to Canada. But what he did that day was incredible. Uh, he was crucial, instrumental uh, in saving that observation post and helping keep the rest of his platoon alive and into the fight. And he did that despite the incredible wounds that he had and the fact that he was there by himself, and therefore displayed valor in the presence of the enemy. And we believe that maybe, just maybe, a review would agree with us saying that instead of the star of military valor, what he should be awarded is Canada's Victoria Cross. And that would be the first time that the Canadian Victoria Cross, we made it the Canadian Victoria Cross back in the early 1990s, and that would be the first time the Canadian Victoria Cross would be awarded to any uh, any man or woman serving Canada in the uniform of the Canadian Forces. We think it would be justified to review that citation and maybe now to look at it and then assess whether or not it should be upgraded to the Victoria Cross. We think it would be. General Hillier, that's superhuman effort that you uh, and dedication that you describe, Private Jeff LaRochelle, is, is, I can't imagine one person doing what he did. We know he did it. In October of 2006, for, for one person to do what he did and save the lives that he saved when he was suffering as much as he was, 
it's just superhuman, and it's something I don't know this gentleman, this young man, but I'm so proud of him, um, and and I know you are as well, as you've s- stated. So he received the Star of Military Valor. What has to happen now? For this to be changed to the Victoria Cross, I know a letter was sent, uh, which you signed and other members uh, of uh, of the association signed for the Governor General. What's the what's the process now? Well, uh, it's it's pretty, uh, Roy. It's pretty straightforward. And so, yes, I'm proud of Jeff Larishell. First of all, you know, you got to meet this young man, this this son of Canada, and, and you see this quiet, you know, soft spoken young guy, and, and you look at him and say, Hey, I don't see, you know. Uh, some some movie screen hero here. This is just an incredible soldier, an incredible Canadian, who did what he had to do on that incredible day, uh, that incredible day, and 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 was valorous doing it, and and made an impact. And we think that should be recognized. It's really simple. What has to occur is that the citation has to be reviewed, and any other new fresh information added to that, perhaps the fact that he volunteered, should be added to go into that uh, observation post, that was never considered as part of the original citation. The extent of his uh, injuries and wounds was certainly far greater than was what was uh, seen at the time in the original citation. And the fact that he volunteered to stay on in that observation post after volunteering to go there and being in the fight, I think all of those things are should be considered in a review of the citation. And that review can come about in, in several ways. Number one, it can come about by uh, a direct order from the uh, Commander-in-Chief of the Canadian Air Forces, the Governor-General of Canada. We've written to Her Excellency and asked that she direct a review of the citation. Number two, it can come about uh, by a, uh, a, uh, a move in the House of Commons to direct an, uh, a review of the citation. And we put a petition into the House of Commons, and I would ask anybody listening here if you feel so so inclined, so supportive, go on to Valor in the Presence of the Enemy on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and look up that petition there. You'll find it very easily and go on and sign it. We've already had 10,000 people sign it. We want to get to 100,000. The House of Commons could direct a review of the citation. The Minister of Defense, who we've uh, asked about this, could direct it, or the Chief of Defense staff, and we feel that one of them will and that we would have a, a review of the citation, and we're not saying, look, it must be a Victoria Cross. We, we think a review would stand in and of itself and say, yeah, this should be a Victoria Cross. And, and Roy, there may be others out there. You know, through our history, we've not been perfect in recognizing men and women uh, who served us in our great history in, in times of incredible, stressful difficulty and risk to themselves, sometimes at the cost of their life. And there may be more than Jess LaRochelle, but Jess LaRochelle is kind of the camel's nose underneath the tent. So here's one that really sticks out. Let's review the citation, perhaps an independent committee to do so, and look at the new information. That's all it takes, review the citation. Now, it would be so well-earned, so well-deserved, and I'm sure so significant to all of the veterans of the Afghanistan campaign. So it's Valor in the face of the presence of the enemy, Valor in the presence of the enemy on Facebook, and the electronic petition is 3636, L-E-3636. General Hillier, thank you very much again for what you continue to do for this country and for the men and the women in the military, and it's an honor to speak with you on it. Really, really hope, and I hope our listeners get involved and get onto Facebook, Valor in the presence of the enemy, sign the petition, E-3636, for Jess LaRochelle. He's earned that. General, thank you for the time. Roy, Roy, it's my pleasure. And if I could just one last thing, please, to say, not only sign that petition, 
But, you know, the city of North Bay uh, passed a, a regulation to say, hey, we believe the citation review should take place. And what I would simply ask, again, of your listeners, if you're from a town, a community, a city across Canada that has had even one soldier join the Canadian Forces and serve, then recognize those soldiers by also passing a motion to review that citation. And we get towns and cities across the country, you know, the, the leaders of Canada will understand that this is serious, that Canadians want that citation reviewed, and that maybe uh, we'll get recognition that's more appropriate to what the act actually deserves. So I just simply ask that. And Roy, thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 